This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. A few weeks ago, I gave a talk at church about the mark of the beast and the end times. And so today I'll play that for you. It's an expanded version of an episode that I presented about a month ago. In addition to discussing the end times, I talk about the mark of the beast. And while I can't really give a final and definitive explanation of the mark of the beast, I hope what I share will be helpful to you in understanding better what the scriptures say about the mark of the beast. Before I share that recording with you, I'd like to mention again, if you want to contact me, please feel free to drop me a line at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. Love to hear from you. And actually, I received email from a listener regarding my last podcast episode, where I talked about prioritizing self-care by purchasing luxurious loungewear. And this writer wrote, I enjoyed your latest podcast episode. Where can I get those luxury pajamas? Can I use the promo code ANCIENTPATHS20 for 20% off? (laughs) That would be hilarious if I started using marketing in this podcast. (laughs) And then the listener continues, Seriously, though, I feel like all of the self-love and self-care stuff has taken hold because people believe it solves a problem of some sort. I have no idea what problem. Anxiety? Comparison? Shame? Busyness? Burnout? Loneliness? I wonder what people are using this radical self-love stuff for exactly. If therapists are recommending it, to whom and in what circumstances are they recommending it? And what would Scripture recommend instead? It's just some thoughts. And this listener is studying carving, wood carving and building things, and she says, One of my carving books has a chapter called Self-Care, but it's just a set of stretches to do after you've spent a lot of time using an axe. (laughs) Self-care. But she writes, I feel like all this self-love and self-care stuff has taken hold because people believe it solves a problem of some sort. Yeah, maybe. I have to think about this. Perhaps some of you listening right now have ideas about that. What is this problem or need that self-love and self-care provide or fill? Anxiety, these are the examples that the listener sends. Comparison, shame, busyness, burnout. And then what would the scripture recommend instead? I think that's a large part of what I've been talking about recently. What the scriptures recommend instead is self-denial and really just not even thinking about the self at all. The answer to anxiety is obedience. The Lord says, don't worry about anything. And that's not a suggestion. It's a command. Comparing ourselves to others. Well, the scriptures say, be content with what you have. Shame. (laughs) Well, depends on how that's being lived out. But the answer to shame is forgiveness. And then self-denial, just not even thinking about that. Gratitude, perhaps, is a great antidote to shame. Thanking God for the fact that even though we've done shameful things, we have no condemnation when we're in him. That's a beautiful thing. Busyness, burnout, loneliness. Yeah, the Lord provides for all of those things, but not in the way the world provides. And it makes me think of what Jesus said, I give you peace, but not as the world gives peace. So whatever this need is that is being filled or whatever this deep longing and desire that is filled by these teachings on self-love and self-care, they are actually met in the person of Jesus himself. He is the way out of anxiety. He is the answer to all of these things. Amen. When I was at church the other day, I preached a sermon and one of the older ladies said, What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? How do you work that out? And my reply was, that'll look different for everybody. If we could get a book that told us exactly what that was, then we could follow the instructions of that book, like following a recipe or something like that. But that is not God's way. We live out his will in fellowship with him. 
So the way to be in the world but not of the world is to live in fellowship with God by the Spirit. And that is exactly the way that we will be in the world but not of it. And then he'll call us to let go of certain things or embrace certain things, talk about certain things, release different things. That's what he's going to do as he guides us through what it means to live out a life of being a Christian in this world but not of it. So again, I want to thank you all for sending in your notes. It's great to hear from listeners. It's really fun to receive these notes and to see that we're all thinking in the same way or in the general same direction. If you have any questions about what I've shared, things that I've mentioned, and you're not quite sure about whether I'm right or not, (laughs) please feel free to write me and let's talk about it. I'll mention it here on the podcast. But now I'll go ahead and hand this over to myself, a recording that I made maybe a month ago or so, where I discuss the mark of the beast and our attitude towards the end times. Hello, everyone. So, as you've heard, I'm going to be talking about, oh, the last days. It may not be exactly what you're expecting, but as you know, it's a big topic. I should be done by midnight. (laughs) They're sour faces. I am a preacher who can squeeze a 20-minute sermon into an hour. (laughs) So, no, I'm going to move through things pretty quickly, I think. Bill and I were talking about what the title of this would be. My thought was, imagine the title being Your Future, colon, Pain in the Last Days. And he thought that probably wouldn't go real well. So, I've traveled around a lot. Most of you know that. Just even last month, uh, in August, tail end of August, early September, I was in Estonia, Romania, Serbia, Montenegro, visiting people, having fellowship there. I've had a lot of conversations with people in other countries. The situation with COVID over the last year and a half or so has got a lot of people very concerned about things, and quite a few of my conversations have come to this discussion as, you know, the, the world, all the systems, everything is being shaken, and what does it all mean? What's normal now? And A lot of the conversation turns to discussions about the last days and the beast and the mark of the beast and and these signs of the last days. Just a lot of people are having those conversations. And I'll also say I have, it's remarkable, I've got friends on both extremes of whatever political thing there are. So I can have conversations and it'll be this way and I'll have some other conversations that's a different take. It's not just people in America who are concerned about these things or thinking about these things in Romania, Serbia, Montenegro, Estonia. Believers are thinking about this. And so I started thinking about it a bit more and uh, just wanted to share. I don't know that I'm really teaching, but I want to share some things that have been very helpful to me. And also, hopefully, to illuminate some of the anxieties that people have and some of the misunderstandings or misconceptions that people have because the mark of the beast is in the culture and in many ways it's kind of separated from what the scriptures actually say about that and people's thoughts can just start rolling on and and you can say all kinds of things that aren't really scriptural but then there are other things that they never really mention about the mark of the beast and the end times and So it sounds a lot heavier than it really is. I talked about this at Sunday school a couple of Sundays ago, but this is an expanded version of that that conversation. The one thing that I pick up on, and I'll address this a little bit later, is a sense of foreboding by Christians, an anxiety of something bad happening, a real, it's not fear necessarily, but just kind of a dread that kind of hangs over some of these conversations. I would not be surprised if most people in this room have felt that at different times because it's a natural way to respond when everything is turned upside down and and 
the control we thought we had over our, our own lives has shown not to actually be in our control anymore. <laughs> I mean, I will say that uh, the life of a Christian is a constant letting go, constant surrender, constant letting go, because at some point, if we live long enough and we die of old age, we'll end up on our deathbed. And at that point, when our spirit leaves our body, we have to let go of everything on this earth. We have to let go of everything. And I want to, personally, I want to live each day as if I'm on my deathbed, constantly surrendering so that when that day comes or that moment comes, it's familiar territory, right? So what we're going through now in the world is a really, uh, it's a great opportunity to, well, the word would be repent in the real meaning of it, to rethink, to think differently. The way I've thought about the world is not the way God is talking about the world. But also when we get into situations like this, it's a chance to you know, see things from God's perspective. And so thankfully, he has given us his perspective in the word. We don't have to just kind of guess about things. There's a lot in the book of Revelation, of course, that is metaphorical, but there's truth there. We may not understand exactly how everything's going to work, but there are true things there that can be very helpful to us. So I'm going to quickly talk about the mark of the beast, and then I'll get into your future pain in the last days. <laughs> Anybody want to leave now? <laughs> There's a lot, like I said, in the book of Revelation that is metaphorical and um, it's an interesting thing. People will talk about these metaphors in different ways. And actually, I find myself, some of the things I think are literally true, and some of the things I think must be metaphors. If you have a, a world relig religious leader with seven horns, it's like, well, I think that's probably metaphorical, probably. But we might have a literal world leader with seven horns. I don't know. But the mark of the beast is one of those things that's mentioned very specifically and several times in the book of Revelation, and it carries with it specific aspects for human beings. And that's what I want to focus on. People have thought, uh, I've heard it actually today or yesterday, somebody saying the vaccine is the mark of the beast and I don't want to wear that mark. I'm not going to get that vaccine, right? Yeah, I mean, that's people are thinking that way. So let's look at first what the Bible actually says about this mark. There's a couple of things that are very important, whether it's a literal mark or not a literal mark. I'll talk about that in a second. It's still real and it takes wisdom to understand it. And if we don't understand it, that's okay because the Bible says if any of you lacks wisdom, ask and it will be given. The Father gives wisdom without finding fault. So it doesn't matter how good we are. And if we don't have the wisdom that we need about these things, then that means we don't need it at that time. If we don't have the wisdom that we want, that means we don't need it. He will give us the wisdom that we need when we need it. And I think his followers are going to very clearly see when the time is right. They're going to, you're going to, it won't be a surprise. You won't fall into this mark or whatever. It's going to be clear because God is a, a loving father and Jesus is a good shepherd. And he wants us to abide in him and have his wisdom. So we can be at peace about all that. All right, so let's read what the Bible says about this mark. I'll read. You could write down the references if you want. I think there might be a couple of other references in addition to these few, uh, maybe one other. Anyway, Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of this beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Okay, so people that don't worship this beasts are going to be killed. Also, it causes all, everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Perfectly clear, right? Let's go home. Now we understand it all. A couple of things. There's this beast that has the power to kill those who won't worship it. And it has the power to assign some kind of a mark on the hand, on the forehead, 
so that if you don't have that mark, you can't participate in the economic systems of the world. How about that? You can't buy, you can't sell. That's going to be hard for people that don't have that mark. Imagine if no one would take your money. You want to go, go to Kroger's and they say, I'm sorry, you don't have that mark. We can't, we can't sell you anything. It's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard. Those days are going to be hard, really hard. But we'll talk about that. Your future, pain in the last days. <laughs> it's okay. We can laugh about it, guys, because I'll t- you'll find out as I finish up. It's, uh, it's actually good. Chapter 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand. I just want to point out these two things. There's worshiping the beast and receiving the mark. It's not just a mark. It's almost always grouped together. There's a mark and there's worshiping the beast. That's what's lost in much of the discussions in the world that it's actually a religious thing. This mark of the beast affects our ability to interact with this world economically, but it is also a mark of worshiping, worshiping the beast. Chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. There it is again. Bearing the mark, worshiping the image. Uh, Verse 19, 20. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So here we are again, receiving the mark and worshipping. Chapter 20, verse 4. And then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Okay, so there's this group of people that had not worshipped the beast. I assume... And pray that everyone in this room, everyone listening to my voice, will be in that group. As hard as it is, that we will not worship that beast. So, is this metaphor? I never metaphor I didn't like. Is it real? Will there be a physical mark? A tattoo or a... I'm doing my left hand, but it's the right hand. Or a chip or something like that. I don't know the answer to that. And since I don't know the answer to that, I assume we're not there yet. Right? I trust that God will make things clear. I don't think we're all the way at the end of time, but he has told us there's a lot of stuff that happens before we get to the worst of the worst. So it's interesting that in the Old Testament, we have exactly the same imagery. Did you know that? In the Old Testament, there is a mark a symbol, a symbolic mark that goes on the forehead and on the hand. So let's look at that. And this is really helpful. In instituting the Passover in Exodus 13 and also in Deuteronomy, uh, which memorializes this basic principle of Exodus. Let me say it again. The Passover, when you celebrate, when the Jews were celebrating Passover, it was to memorialize or remember this basic principle of exodus, of leaving Egypt, leaving slavery, coming out of that culture and into what God has prepared for his people. That's what the Passover memorializes. In Exodus 13, starting in, I think, verse 3, Moses says to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. 
So this is God saying, you need to perpetuate and remember the Exodus. You need to keep teaching the generations that God saved you from slavery and pulled you out of this other culture and is bringing you into the land that he's promised you, okay? And then in verse 9, Moses says something that's a little cryptic. Verse 9, and this observance, the Passover observance, will be for you like a sign on your hand and like a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips, for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Isn't that something? So remembering the Passover and teaching it to the generations is like a sign on the hand and the head. Now, the Bible doesn't say, why the head, why the hand? But one thing that helps me think about this, and this is not in the scriptures, but you could say it's your thinking and your actions. It's a sign of where your mind is and where your actions are, where your life goes to. In any event, God says, this observance of the Passover is going to be like a sign, as a sign. So that's metaphorical language, right? Like or as. It's cryptic, but so is Revelation. Not really clear, but we see a parallel here. The people of God observing and remembering that they have been pulled out of slavery and out of Egypt, and that's like a symbol. But it goes on in the same chapter in verses 14 through 16. In the days to come, when your sons ask you, what does this mean? You say to your son, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. And this is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. 16, and it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Different translations say it differently. It'll be like a frontlet between your eyes. It'll be, but the language is the same. It's like or as. It's not saying that it will be physically a sign. It's saying it'll be like a sign. So I don't know. I guess one thought I just had is if somebody has a sign on their head, you can't miss it. If it's right there, you look them in the eyes and you're going to see there is a mark. There is something that's there that marks his people. Again, this reiterates this point of memorializing Exodus, reminding the generations that they have gone from one culture to another and teaching the children about the Passover. When we do that, it'll be like a sign on the head and like a sign on the hand. It's really comforting to me to know that long before this book of Revelation ever came around, God was using this language, right? We're not lost in Revelation. We, there's things there that are helpful. I personally find spiritual comfort even if I don't get mental, uh, complete mental grasp of everything. Something's going on and there's one group of people that have been called out of slavery and they bear the mark of God. And there's another group of people that stay in it and they worship the beast and they participate in those world systems and they have that other mark. You see the, the contrast there. Uh, then in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through eight, we have what is perhaps the most famous of all the Old Testament scriptures. It's called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen and it starts with this. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Verse 6, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Can the commandment literally be on my heart? Like a post-it note stuck on my heart? No, but it's a way of thinking about it, right? It's like that commandment needs to be close to the the root of who I am. It's got to be there. Impress them on your children. Here it is again. Tell the kids about it. Talk about these laws, these commandments, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, talk about the things of God always with your kids. 
Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So there are some Jews who you will actually see. They have a little box tied on their forehead and inside are a copy of the Ten Commandments, that covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. They take it literally. Most people in the world don't take it literally. But here's that imagery again. It'll be like a symbol on our foreheads. So okay, so people are then commanded to teach each other and speak about this exodus, this coming out and the commandments of God, and they're to be immersed in the culture of God. We could say it that way. God is saying when you immerse yourself and your children in the culture of God, you've left Egypt, you've left slavery, you've left bondage because God did that. When you immerse yourself in it, then it's like a mark on your forehead and like a mark on your hand. In verse 8, again, there in Deuteronomy, it says you'll bind them on your hand. It's cryptic. It's a little bit cryptic. And then in Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 through 21, I'll read verse 18. Fix these words of mine on your hearts and your minds. Tie them as symbols on your hand and bind them on your foreheads. So it's interesting. If you have the words on a piece of paper and you tie them on your hand, it's not a symbol. It's actually the thing, right? So the language is still a little bit cryptic, which honestly... Oh, God does that so often, and Jesus did it so often when he taught. It's like, what? Because it draws us in to relationship with him. And like, what does that mean, God? How does that affect my heart? What's your truth here? It it makes me want to know more of him, more, right? And that's good. That's good. So there's a truth there. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I know that there are these marks. So here we see two marks, two signs of two cultures, One is the culture of Jehovah, and the other is the culture of the beast. And we're going to look at Revelation a little bit more in a minute. But there's these two kingdoms. There's these two systems. Jesus said, my kingdom isn't of this world. There are two kingdoms. And I think what we're seeing in the book of Revelation, this mark of the beast is people who are fully immersed in that world culture and are so deeply in it, they actually worship it, whatever way that means, they look to that system as providing everything for them that they need. The people who worship Jehovah, they look to him as he provides everything that we need. Their thanks and their gratitude, their praise is towards him. And when you have a Georgia football game, you get 100,000 people praising the team, honestly. What, you know, what is praise? When you praise a dog, you say, good dog, that's great, you did great, right? When you praise God, you're like, God, you are so wonderful. You are so great. It's amazing what you've done. If you praise the world, you'd say, wow, technology is amazing. Look how it makes my life so easy. Do you see what I mean? It's turning your, yeah, you're praising. And we need to be the people that worship Jehovah. We praise Jehovah. And when we do that, it's like a mark on our forehead. It's, it's like a symbol on our hand. It's our thoughts and our actions all in tune to him. And there is conflict between those two kingdoms. And I think what we see in Revelation is that conflict, it comes to the point where if God doesn't step in, everything would just be ruined, completely annihilated, right? He's got to step in and stop that, well, you know, that downward turn. Okay, so both these marks seem to indicate that our thoughts and our actions are in accordance with either kingdom. At some point in time, refusing the mark of the beast will mean that Christians will no longer be able to buy or sell or participate in the world's economic systems, and that is going to be very hard, but it is not the end. So, to me, instead of thinking the mark of the beast is at some unknown future point that may be in my lifetime or not, it's a bit of a revelation of how present those marks can be now. Like right now, which mark am I going to have? Okay, it is about my head and my hand, me, and telling my daughter and keeping her in this culture of Exodus that we're called to be in the world but not of it. Jesus himself, that's exactly what he did. He was deep in the world, but he's not of it. And Psalm 84 says that we should have this attitude of pilgrimage. We are pilgrims passing through this world. 
just let go. Our home isn't here. Our home is somewhere else. While we're here, God's got things for us to do, but this is not our kingdom. This is not our home. As a matter of fact, I've said it, many of you have heard me say it, everything that you own right now will at some point either belong to somebody else or go into the trash heap. Everything you have, the clothes, I'll say, your hair, your skin, it's going to go into the trash heap ultimately. But that's not the end of the story. There's a resurrection. I would love to do another teaching looking at the scripture, what happens between death and resurrection? What happens when the spirit slips the body? And we see some things in the scriptures about that. Matter of fact, the people that passed away today in the Lord, the Bible says angels came and got them. They're not alone. Their spirit slips out of their body and the angels come and take them up. So I won't get into that, but it's, I had that conversation with my mom before she passed away. It was very comforting to her to see what does God reveal about it. Okay, now we'll move on. All right, let's look at Psalm 49. I'll go through this a little bit quickly. There's other things to look at, but this is to address this persistent anxiety that I've picked up in some conversations with Christians. It's not really a fear, but yeah, this sense of dread or a little bit of a depression or like... um, In psychology, there's a thing called learned helplessness. When things get so hard, you just kind of give up fighting and you just wait for the next hard thing to hit. So I have picked up on some of that in conversations, but I've also felt the temptation in that direction. So let's look at Psalm 49. I think it helps. This is from the sons of Korah. Man, it'd be fun to meet those guys. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all you who live in this world, both high and low, rich and poor alike. That would include, I think, most everybody here. (laughs) Everybody here. All who live in this world. Listen, my mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance of my heart will give understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb, and with the harp I will expound my riddle. Okay, that's a good start. You guys need to listen to this, right? Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No man can redeem the life of another or give God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. Boy, there's a a looking forward to the resurrection and to Jesus himself never seeing decay and then our life being ransomed. But he's saying these people who trust in their wealth, they can't even ransom their own lives. For all can see that wise men die, this is verse 10, the foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. I was just talking about that. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. I've passed uh, roads called Cantrell Road, and I think, who is that Cantrell? He had a road named after him, but now he's in the grave, and who knows who it was, right? Even though these guys had entire lands named after themselves, they die. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Verse 13, this is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve of their sayings. And then there's this word selah. Nobody knows what it really means except it seems to be a point in a song, in a psalm, where you pause and you reflect and you worship God over what you've just heard. It's a little break. So this is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of the people who follow them and approve of what they say. Like sheep, they're destined for the grave and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave He will surely take me to himself. Selah. This is one of the few times in the Old Testament where there's this foreshadowing understanding of the resurrection life and being redeemed from the grave. It's there in the hearts of believers. Do not be overawed when a a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. You can't take it with you. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed. And men praise you when you prosper. 
but he will join the generations of his fathers who will never see the light. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49. So what do we take from this? Don't fear when evil days come. Just don't be afraid. When wicked deceivers are all around us and those who trust in their wealth and boast of their riches, don't be afraid when those evil days come. We're going to look at what Jesus said about it too, of course. This is the fate of everyone who trusts in themselves. So we should be a people that don't trust in ourselves. We put our trust elsewhere. God will redeem our lives from the grave, and he will surely take us to himself. So what of this anxiety that I've picked up on, this concern for future suffering? Let's see what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Of course, Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about the end days. Boy, you know, there are just so many different ways to talk about this. I've, been, I've heard so many different teachers who are men of God, who know the Bible, who strongly disagree with each other about what some of this means. I remember a really good friend of mine doing a really great teaching on the book of Revelation. And then later I heard somebody else and I said, well, that's good. But they were just, they actually didn't agree with each other. So let's take from it what we can take from it and hold a lot of things very loosely. That's the way I think about it. Matthew 24, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. There are a lot of scriptures that say, don't let yourself be deceived. Watch out. Be on the watch. That comes up quite a bit. Jesus says it. It's in the letters of Paul. Watch out. Be careful. And Jesus says, because many will come in my name, okay, that's Christians, claiming I am the Christ, and they'll deceive many. Actually, there was a, a man out in the far east of Russia who claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ. And People flocked to him. They sold everything they had and went out. And he was a deceiver. But those poor people, they thought they were worshiping God. And, you know, they left everything to follow this charlatan, this liar. Okay, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Watch out that you're not deceived and be sure that you're not alarmed. Well, I've been in conversations I pick up on alarm. People are getting alarmed. But Jesus says, don't, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, going on in verse 6. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And that's what I want to highlight. To God, all of this that's happening on the earth, wars, Kingdoms fighting each other, earthquakes, famines, their birth pains. When the birth pains come, mothers, are you hopeless? That's a natural part of this new birth. Well, let's look at what Jesus says about the attitude of a, a mother giving birth. John 16, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Remember, he's talking to his disciples just before he's... Uh, killed. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it will be with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy." So all of these anxieties, all this stuff that is heading toward the end of time is just birth pains because there's something so much better coming that all of this will be forgotten. It will be completely forgotten and will be full of joy. So that's the language that Jesus himself uses. That's what he tells his disciples. Okay, so we really need to take it seriously. It's not, oh, it might be this way, or that's one way to think about it. No, all of this stuff, the wars between human beings and the, the corruption of the earth itself and creation, it's birth pains. And he says, don't be alarmed. And we're going to come to that message here in a second. Several years ago, we had a really, really hard time in our ministry in Russia. I won't get into the circumstances, but it was as hard as... I've ever been through in terms of, it wasn't physical 
but attacks and the threat of arrest perhaps or being deported, the tearing apart of the ministry that I was in, it was pretty bad times. And everything that I was involved in was being shaken. And it happened in September, late September, October, we were harvesting potatoes out in the Russian countryside. And if any of you have ever harvested potatoes by hand, when you plant a potato, you put a seed potato in the ground, and then it grows and other potatoes grow underneath. And at the end, the seed potato is this rotten mass of junk, but there's lots of other potatoes in there. And there's some small potatoes that are just not really worth saving. And when you harvest, you pull it up out of the earth and you shake the potato plant. And the dirt just goes flying and that rotten seed potato flies off and those little bitty potatoes that are just not worth anything, they just go flying. And you shake it and then you've got what's good and strong and what you want. And I remember I was in the middle of all of this and I was here, I was shaking potatoes in a field and I said, oh, I'm, my life's being shaken. God is allowing, it's a harvest. He's allowing me to be shaken and everything that I thought, well, for the potato, it's like, oh, all this earth is around me. I'm so happy here. But that's got to go. Yeah, it's just got to go. And violently. And I thought, that's what's happening. I'm being shaken. And we had, for example, we had a partner in Canada. It was a big ministry in Canada, helping orphans in different ways. They had flown me to Canada to meet with their people. And we were communicating about all these plans that we had coming. And when we had this attack, it was attack from the, the national government and the national media focused on our little ministry. <laughs> and um, they stopped answering emails. The Canadians stopped answering email. You know, I'd met with them. I thought they were friends. But man, as soon as they knew that we had that kind of governmental looking, they said, we're just not even going to be around. I remember thinking, oh, I got shook and they, they flew off. So it's like, okay, that showed how close they really were to us. So, okay, that was good. I'm glad God did that. I didn't go much further with them because they weren't really aware of being called by God to partner with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed around. So we get shaken sometimes. And these last days, whenever they come, they're going to be times of shaking that's never been seen before. And I'm saying that after World War II when tens of millions of people died in the area where I live and work now. Those were terrible days, terrible days. It's gonna be worse than that, a lot worse than that. We call it a world war, but there was a lot of the world that wasn't in that war. But when you come to the end of days, it's the whole thing. So now let's go to Revelation because this is really good. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven and he had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, the angel shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Isn't that interesting? For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So there's different talks about what is Babylon the Great, but it seems to be a global system that seems to be economic and political because the kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from this corrupt, luxurious life that Babylon embodies. At least we could say that. Verse 4, And then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Well, here's that come out of her, the Exodus call. Come out. Come out. And I think when I spoke here the last time, Bill had said, what is the Lord saying in the world? And he's saying, come out. It's always his call. Come out of that. Come out away. And here he's saying, you get away because... You don't want to share in the sins of this corrupt system, and you don't want to receive any of the plagues that are coming. It's a warning. It's serious. It is very serious. But we have a God who knows how to speak clearly enough that we will hear. We need to abide in him so much now that when things like this come up, then we know his voice and we can follow his leading. I thank God that he revealed to me when I was in a Russian potato field 
that he was shaking my life because it helped me. It did not change the circumstances at all. Nothing changed in my circumstances, but I had hope. Okay, verse 9 of 18, we'll skip down a little bit. In Revelation 18, it talks about the kings and the merchants a few times. When the kings of the earth who had committed adultery with her, with Babylon, and shared in her luxury, when they see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off, and they'll cry, Whoa, whoa, oh great city, oh Babylon, city of power. In one hour, your doom has come. This one hour is repeated later. It happens quick. I think that's what it's saying. I mean, you could say maybe it's 60 minutes, but within, I mean, we saw how quickly things changed a year and a half ago. It was like, wow, borders closed. It just was like, it was almost like throwing a switch. It probably took a few weeks, but still you're like, man, how did the world change so quickly? Well, it's going to happen globally. Okay, verse 11, the merchants of the earth, they're going to weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. (laughs) I thought when I read this a year and a half ago, I thought about all the ships that were parked in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California. There was no way to get the stuff in. People couldn't buy. I mean, we're still suffering from that, right? Imagine if that happens globally. All the money dries up or everybody's shut up in their house. They're just not buying anything anymore. The merchants of the earth... Nobody's going to buy their cargoes. And now there's an interesting list of their cargoes. Gold, silver, precious stone, pearls, linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, wood, every kind of ivory, wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and the bodies and souls of men. Isn't that something? What merchants deal in the souls of people? Facebook. I hate to say it. They track our interests. I don't want to get too far into it, but now I understand it. I don't think it's physical slavery. It's people who have learned how to make money off of who we are. And now we see it, right? And these merchants, when they see the entire system collapsing, they're just weeping and they're terrified. Because all their hope is there. And they're going to say, the fruit you longed for is gone for you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. Verse 15, the merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her, they stand off, far off, just like the kings. These are the global merchants, the merchants of the world. They're terrified at her torment, and they will weep, and they'll mourn. And they will say, whoa, oh great city, dressed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. I think the events of the last year and a half have shown us that this, say, it could really happen globally. When I visit Congo, I visit, there's a city I visit, excuse me, Batimbo. It's about a million people. They don't have electricity. The tallest building is three, four stories tall. There's no elevators because there's no electricity. A million people spread out over these mountains, but they all have cell phones. And to the guys in Congo, Facebook is the internet. That's their window into the world. So they're using WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger. They're getting their news from Facebook. They're sharing all their pictures on Facebook. And I was there and I thought, oh, how horrible. The West is being pumped into these mines through these little screens. They're living in mud huts with dirt floors, and they've got this algorithm feeding them things that help keep them attracted to the screen, right? I mean, you're seeing how I think about things a little bit. You can see how it can be global. People that don't have electricity still have the access to this messaging. And a few years ago, they had elections, and the government just turned off the Internet in this whole section of the country. So imagine we get so used to looking at these screens, and then suddenly... Some beast starts feeding information, deceiving information. There are people who actually deceive, right? They're liars. They may be very nice people. Some are called, Jesus calls these false prophets. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. So these deceivers are going to look like sheep. We have to be aware. Okay, verse 18, moving on. The saints are told, as Babylon is falling... 
as the world systems are collapsing, as nobody's buying and it's, it's, everything is falling apart, they are told, rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her, Babylon, for the way she treated you. It's significant to me that God has to remind his people to rejoice right when the entire world system is falling apart. When everything that we've depended on for this comfortable life we have, when it all falls away, and those of us who don't take a mark of the beast, uh, we're slain because we refuse to worship that beast or we just can't get food, so we're starving in the fields, gathering nuts and berries. That's happened historically. That's happened to Christians historically. They're shunned from the villages and they're made to live in the forest with no shelter, dying of starvation. That's happened. Handel's Messiah is very famous, and there is the Hallelujah Chorus. And the Hallelujah Chorus text comes from Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 11, when the world is ending. The Hallelujah Chorus is the voice of the saints when the world system is collapsing. When the birth pains are done, and now it's time for the birth. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. And that's written when the world is completely collapsing. So... Boy, this is a time of choosing for God's people. Which kingdom are we in? Which marks do we symbolically carry? Where are our hearts? Where's our worship? Which direction are we focused? And it's really good that God allows things to be shaken. It's really, really good. I hope we never go back to normal. There's new revelation. There's new understandings. We can be, still be in this world, but not of it. Boy, pray for wisdom about how that affects you personally, how to be in it, but not of it. One answer to that is what we saw in Exodus is you memorialize through the generations. You just keep talking about the things of God, the commandments of God, the goodness of God. Keep talking about it. And as we talk about it and share it when we're rising and falling asleep, when we're walking, when we're sitting down, when we're working, as we talk about the things of God, it's like his mark on our head and our hand. It's like that as we memorialize and remember and celebrate with this Passover feast what God has done. Psalm 49, let's go back there. Don't be afraid when evil days come. And then I'm going to read in Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for those 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. It's a loving father. Let's his kids go through hard things so their character is built up. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. Would God ever cause us to be uncomfortable? Yeah, absolutely. And then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. And why did he do this? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God will let us go through physical sufferings so that we will learn real deep spiritual truths. He will let my life get shaken in such a way that I will have a spiritual re uh, revelation. Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. That was a great lesson I learned at that time. Right in the middle of the hardship, sometimes God says, here's a table, sit down, take your shoes off. Enjoy a good meal right in the middle of all that stuff. Moving on. Know then, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm skipping through a little bit. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord, your God, disciplines you. For the Lord, your God, is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water and springs flowing in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, 
olive oil, honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. Elizabeth Elliot said, the wilderness experience leads to the promised land. I'll amend it a little bit and say, if we don't give in to unbelief and complaining like the Israelites did. The ones that grumbled and complained and didn't believe, they didn't make it in. So that's the message that I really want to bring. The end of times is coming. I don't know if it's in our generation or who, who knows. God alone knows. Actually, the Father only knows. But whatever wilderness he leads us to always leads to this promised land. It always does. And the phrase that I've said, the best is always ahead for followers of Jesus. It's true. always ahead. True. Don't look back. I mean, there are good things to remember, but that, they're back. The best is ahead. The best is always ahead. So there's suffering, there's hardship, difficult times come, but they're birth pains. That's what they are. They're birth pains. It's going to be hard, but that's not the end of the story. Amen. We have hope. Yeah, and it's not Mike Cantrell saying it. It's Jesus saying it to his people. And he loves us so much that he gives us a heads up. He says, you better watch out. Don't let people deceive you. A lot of people are going to come in my name, but you don't worry about that. Don't be alarmed. You know, be careful, but don't be alarmed about it. I'll just end with a little story. When John Wesley was a young man, he crossed the ocean. He was a uh, Church of England priest, I guess, and he came over to do mission work in Savannah. And he came across on the ship... And on the ship were what he called the Germans. They were Moravian brethren, um, Anabaptist believers who were coming to the New World to do missionary work. And a storm came up. This was in Wesley's journal. He wrote about it later. A storm came up, and it was so bad that he was sure everyone was going to die, that they were going to sink out in the Atlantic before, before they even got over here. And Wesley later remarked all of the Christians were scared to death. They were fearful, but these Moravian brethren and their families, they were singing hymns in the middle of this terrible, terrible storm. They were completely at peace. And after the storm had passed, Wesley went up and talked to him. He said, tell me, well, how is it that you're not afraid? He said, well, you know, we believe in the Lord and we don't have anything. We're not afraid of things. And he said, but your, your women and your children, what about them? And the guy said, oh, our women and children are not afraid to die an entire community of believers, and they're not afraid to die. They're just not afraid to. They're on a ship. They know the Lord wanted them there. If it sinks and they die, that is the will of the Lord. They're just not afraid to die. So that's, man, that's, how, that's what the world needs when everything is collapsing, is a strong, fearless people who know the truth and really live it. That's why God puts his people in the middle of hard times, because he loves the other people that are going through it and don't know him. So John Wesley can ask them, how, what is going on? And they say, you know, we really believe, we really believe in Jesus, and we're not afraid to die. And he was a young man. This was before Methodism and all that. It really struck him. Oh, my faith is not like that. Let me just close with a prayer, if I may. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. God, and amen, help us to learn this lesson that we don't live by bread, physical bread. We actually live by every word that proceeds from your mouth, God. That is food. It's eternal, good food. Lord, thank you so much. And God, I, please help us, move in us by your spirit that we will be a fearless people, that we will not be alarmed. Amen, God, that we will be aware and cautious, watching out for deceiving spirits, being very careful, but always full of love and grace. Amen, God. That anyone who would ask us, why are you not afraid that we can glorify you with our answer and turn hearts to you? Father, I pray your blessing on everyone in this room. God, amen. Prepare us in whatever way we need to be prepared to move into the next thing that you have for us, God. Amen. I know that you want us to share in your holiness. You want us to walk with you and abide in you. And Lord, help us to, amen, receive whatever hardships you allow into our lives because that's just going to lead to good things. It will always lead to the promised land. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, we all have gathered here 
in his name. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And Jesus sits on the throne of David forever and ever. Amen.